0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible
2: travel, culture and heritage, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
3: Join us as we travel along the award-winning journalistic trails of the Crazy River explore prehistoric spirit stones, and contemplate the end of the world in Maya 2012. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning into World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we encourage you to buckle up and prepare for a very exciting journey today.
1: Despite escaping death in Mexico's Sierra Madre, author Richard Grant took off on another adventure in East Africa along what he calls the Crazy River.
2: 330-mile-long river that no one had ever gone down in a boat before and that the Internet had barely heard of. It just it just struck me as strange that there was a kind of unexplored river in the 21st century.
1: Diane Bioff explores the enduring lessons of Western Europe's prehistoric monoliths stone circles and burial chambers, and the architectural essence of these archaeological treasures.
0: They are basically the, the um, architecture of, of the, 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 the spiritual side, we are assuming the spiritual side, of um, Bronze Age and Stone Age, Neolithic, the New Stone Age.
1: On December twenty first, 2012, the end of the Maya calendar will come to pass. Some consider that this will be the end of the world, but author Joshua Berman provides another perspective in his guidebook, Maya 2012.
4: Well, what I tell people when they say what's going to happen on December 21st or or in the year 2012, uh, the best answer that i found is it's already happening when you look around.
1: This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com.
3: In his last book, the adventure classic, God's Middle Finger, award-winning travel writer Richard Grant narrowly escaped death in Mexico's lawless Sierra Madre. Nonetheless, Richard's curiosity and restlessness took him to Africa, where he set off on another adventure to find the source of the Nile River. In his newest book, Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa, Richard writes that he had trained and prepared for a physical adventure in the wilderness, but his biggest challenges were intellectual. Richard, you faced some intellectual challenges, I would say, in the Sierra Madre. How different were the intellectual challenges you faced there versus those in Africa?
2: Well, I guess sort of linguistic. I mean, my Spanish was quite good in Mexico, um, and that really kind of makes everything a lot easier. In Africa, I tried to learn Swahili, but I didn't really get, I didn't really make very good progress with it. So, for one thing, I was constantly relying on 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 guides and translators, uh, some of whom were sort of reliable, and some of whom were basically more interested in trying to take my money. Mm-hmm. What
3: what was it about exploring the Nile that appealed to you? Uh,
2: well, I I just kind of put the the source of the Nile as my kind of ultimate destination. The the the, the river I was really interested in exploring was called the Malagarassi and this was uh, in western Tanzania, um, a 330 mile long river that no one had ever gone down in a boat before, and that the internet had barely heard of. It just it just struck me as strange that there was a kind of unexplored river in the 21st century, and I thought, here's a gap in our knowledge that needs filling.
3: Well, I mean, that begs the question, then, you know, how did you actually prepare for this journey physically, mentally, and, and logistically? You touched on language, but I'm thinking travel logistics.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really, really difficult. I mean, we were just you know, we live in an information age where we used to be able to sort of Google up information about the places that we go, but there was nothing on this river. We didn't know if we were going to be able to get food along, we were going to buy food. We didn't know what language people were speaking along the banks of the river. We didn't know what the security situation was because no one had gone in there and brought back a report and circulated it. So in that sense, you know, exploration is kind of a, I use that term in, in quotes, but this Going somewhere where you've just got no idea, like what's what's around the bend, you know, it really is kind of what exploration amounts to, You're kind of living on your wits.
3: Mm. Did you know going into an unknown situation as you mentioned? But did you have any expectations really before embarking on this particular adventure?
2: Um, yeah, I suppose my I'd, I'd kind of done a couple of river safaris in Africa where you kind of met by experts and, and sort of whisked off to the river in, in, in land cruises and there's a fantastic sort of tented camp waiting for you and you kind of feel like you're, an inve- you're on an adventure but you're actually sort of very insulated and, and, and very well taken care of and I guess I was I was expecting to sort of have this kind of quite wonderful experience in the incomparable African wilds and uh turned out to be sort of more men with guns than i was expecting um also the river the river threw up a lot of a lot of challenges in the way of uh waterfalls and swamps and uh hippos and crocodiles and particularly fevers and uh, other sorts of disease
3: well how did you i mean just kind of going back to some of the lo- logistical preparations how did you find tour guides how did you vet them
2: well, yeah, I mean, I, originally, uh, the the guy who told me that there was still this unexplored river in Africa, he was a, a an expert kayaking guide, and I arranged my whole trip through him, and then, just as I was about to get on the plane to Africa, he dropped out, leaving me without a guide, and then I sort of, I managed to find another guy in, in Dar es Salaam who's really a hunter, but he had some river experience, and I ended up going with him, and it was not ideal. Um, we didn't really complete the uh, the glorious first descent of the river that I was hoping for, but we we kind of went down more of it than anybody else and uh, if anyone wants to go down that river now, uh, they can at least um, know what to brace themselves for.
3: Mhm. I mean, you traveled through several countries and I'm going to ask you to talk about those countries, but I'm curious did this guide that you started with, did he take you throughout or was he with you throughout your um your journey?
2: we we parted ways at Lake Tanganyika which is where the this Malagarasi river uh, ends and i went on by myself on the bus up through burundi and rwanda to the source of the nile and uh yeah i really i mean what what you see in the book is that i sort of began with these kind of um sort of geographical objectives where does this river you know where where is the source of these rivers how do they fit together and but really, what I became interested in was what was going on in contemporary East Africa, and I wound up spending a lot of time with with street gangs, with um, kind of uh, exploring the nightlife, and then ultimately um, interviewing the president of Rwanda. I got interested in the politics, and uh, I got interested in in how you put your society together after after these devastating um, civil wars and genocides that have happened in that part of Africa.
3: Stu, what was your impression of the president of Rwanda?
2: Uh, highly intelligent. I don't think I've ever sat across the table with somebody whose intelligence has seemed so keen. Uh, also slightly intimidating. He's he's been uh, he's been very ruthless with his opponents um, in the media and politically, um, but he's also Rebuilt that country from a kind of genocidal ground zero into a, a safe, clean, prosperous country where every child has access to the internet. Hmm. Um, it's basically sort of a, a, an African success story, Rwanda at this point. Although it has a, a kind of dark undercurrent, it's by no means a, a democracy. It's a it's a kind of a hard-fisted dictatorship.
3: Mhm. Would you say though that Rwanda and maybe you know, some of the other countries you travel through, are they feasible uh tourism uh destinations at this at this point in their history?
2: Uh I think Rwanda, I mean the the, the guerrilla tourism is going is is going fantastically well there. Gorilla numbers are increasing, it's generating a lot of money for Rwanda. Um, I I unfortunately run out of money by the time I I I got near the gorillas. I think it cost a thousand dollars to go up and see them and I was my money belts are very low by those <laughs> days, but everyone says it's just a fantastic experience to get get close to these mountain gorillas and I, I fully intend to go back and, and do it once my funds have replenished themselves. <laughs>
3: Ooh, um, so so you travel through Rwanda, what were some of the other countries that you visited?
2: I went through Burundi, which was at that time, uh, and probably still is, one of the poorest, most corrupt countries in the world, and it had just come through this terrible ethnic civil war, Um, kind of as bad as as things get on this planet in some ways, but um, there was sort of tremendous hope and and resilience amongst this traumatized population, and everyone was kind of really... uh, really focused on, on, on rebuilding and making things better I found it sort of really inspiring to be there I was kind of apprehensive about going there but I ended up staying quite a long time and feeling sort of oddly, oddly inspired by the resilience of the human spirit there
0: mm-hmm.
3: and besides the um, the president of Rwanda were there um, who were some of the other memorable people that you met along the way
2: um... Well, when I started out, I started out my journey in Zanzibar, and I, I fell in with this golf pro on the skids who'd, who'd kind of fallen fallen off the PGA European Tour, and we and wound up sort of drinking a lot in Zanzibar. He was definitely a memorable character. He uh he became my guide to the sort of nightclubs and uh dive bars of Zanzibar and uh he's actually a great guide. He knew all the prostitutes and professional thieves and <laughs> musicians and junkies and that that was a, yeah, there was a lot of detours on this journey. Um, but he was a memorable character. Uh I guess I guess Gustav the Crocodile was a memora- memorable character as a a crocodile that's reputed to have eaten 300 people, including the Russian ambassador's wife in Burundi.
0: Good I spent grief!
2: Some time on his trail.
0: <laughs> is is he
3: an, an urban myth or is he a real creature? No, he he he,
2: he definitely exists. Uh, there's good video footage of him. Um, and there's a Frenchman there that's been tracking Gustave the crocodile for years. Uh, but the Frenchman says that th- it is a myth about the Russian ambassador's wife that the woman that he had was just a, just a mid-level diplomat. She was not married to the ambassador. She was just a mid-level Russian diplomat.
3: Oh, my
0: goodness.
2: Who happened to be taking a little dip in the shallows of Lake Tanganyika one evening, and Gustav came in and took her.
0: Oh, dear. Oh, well,
3: uh, I guess that's not very comforting to me, um, whether she was a Russian ambassador's wife or not. Uh,
2: well, exactly, but I, think, I really I really believe in caution around uh, man-eating crocodiles. It's like, there's no way I would wade in that lake. <laughs> but you see people swimming in there, calling in their kids, come on, it's a nice sunny day, we go for a swim, Gustav won't get us, we have a protective charm from the witch doctor.
0: Oh, dear.
2: It's, I found it, yeah, it was difficult to understand for me.
3: Now, you mentioned that you traveled um, part of your journey solo. What were some of your safety concerns? I'm sure you had to had some, and, and how did you address those on your journey?
2: My safety concerns were many. Yeah. Um, for one thing, I had at one point I had twelve thousand dollars in cash in my money belt um, because in Burundi there's no ATMs and there was no way to get money except you could you could draw money on a credit card from the bank, but the the caveat was only when the electricity was working, and the electricity was hardly ever working in Burundi. So I had a horror of being of being stranded in Africa, in the middle of Africa, with no money to kind of bribe my way out of problems. So I had all this cash around my middle, um, and yeah, just sort of travelling on your own as a as a as a white person. Um, where the tourists don't go, you do feel like a target. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, nobody nobody robbed me. I had a couple of close calls, and um, I kind of uh, as soon as I got to a place, I just I just concentrated on kind of making friends, really. And you're walking down that street with uh, you know an African guy that everybody knows, then you're no longer a target. I guess disease was the other problem. I had a persistent fever mm. um, that i was never quite sure what it was and it would sort of come and go and lay me out for a few days and and uh, I went to a clinic to try and get it diagnosed but everyone at the clinic looked so much sicker than I was that I kind of ran out of it holding my breath uh-huh. thinking whatever I had was better than what they had.
3: Uh, but you had your all your vaccinations and what have you before you left.
2: Yeah, I was. I, I had all my vaccinations. I, I was taking uh, malarone against malaria. So in theory, the fever that I had wasn't malaria. But there's so many other fevers that one can catch in in uh, sort of East Central Africa.
3: Well, you know, what was the most transformative experience you had on this journey?
2: Well, just, just to give you a sort of straightforward example, so we, we, we took a bottle of whiskey down this river, and when we finished the bottle of whiskey, I was about to throw away the empty whiskey bottle. And uh, one of my African companions on the raft said, said, no, oh, don't throw that away. Look, see that woman over there making palm oil? Why don't you go and give her that empty whiskey bottle? So I went over there feeling kind of embarrassed to be offering this woman my trash. And and sure enough, she was she was kind of absolutely delighted Mm-hmm. and it was kind of like the most substantial possession that she had in her hut was now this empty whiskey bottle. And You kind of start to think about all oh, those empty whiskey bottles you've thrown away during your life and, uh, you know, the world shifts, shifts a little inside your head.
3: How difficult is it to, to transition back to life at home when you've had such a cultural immersion experience abroad?
2: Yeah, I found it. I found it a very difficult reentry. Uh, I just, I just felt so kind of raw and peeled when I came back from Africa. I just, I just. You know, my last day in Africa, I spent in a hut with uh, the killers and survivors of the Rwandan genocide, like trying to trying to get along and, and make a life together. And then, you know, you get in the plane and you you emerge kind of 36 hours later in Dallas, Texas, and. You go to the airport coffee shop and there's a woman losing her mind because they put full-fat milk in her coffee by mistake. And then, the morning after that, I I went and bought dog food at PetSmart, and that's what really <laughs> that really got me. From a hut in Rwanda to PetSmart, you know, kind of wheeling wheeling your cart through the through the aisles of of, of dog dental products and toys and the mm-hmm. the grooming salon. And then I got to the cash register and there was a flyer saying enroll in pet massage school for $7,000. <laughs> uh, yeah, the idea of sort of pet massage school um after Africa. Yeah, my head just couldn't quite bridge the gap there.
3: Mhm. It, it kind of, you know, brings the question, what what are the priorities, you know, you have people suffering from hunger and disease as you witnessed. Um to uh overindulgence uh, to some extent
2: here. Yeah. Right? I think if if people don't have real problems like like war and genocide and hunger and disease you know they that they they come up with kind of uh, their own problems and anxieties to sort of sort of fill that space in the in the, in the human brain that's reserved for dealing with problems. We we kind of invent problems to 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 fill the gap left by the real ones that we've solved.
3: Oh. <laughs> Golly that's a <laughs> that makes me sad for us.
2: <laughs> we can't help it you know it's like we we're, we're just we're we're just we're just mammals you know it's like dogs can't help being dogs either.
3: I read somewhere where you said actually that finding the source of the Nile is um really a source of folly what what do you mean by that and, and
2: well, the source of the nile so for, for For 4,000 years, Europeans have have had this sort of obsessive fascination with the source of the Nile. The ancient Greeks thought it was the source of civilization itself because these Nile waters came sort of rushing through the desert into Egypt every year. Where did they come from? But, you know, they nourished the first civilization. During the 19th century, there were these British explorers that staged these kind of ghastly, sort of disease-wrecked, kind of death-plagued expeditions looking for the source of the Nile. it wasn't actually discovered till uh, I think 2006 or 2007. So I, I went up there to have a look at it, and of course it was just a sort of a, a, a gigantic anticlimax and a, a kind of symbol of folly, because all the source of the Nile is it's just a sort of muddy little hole with a, a dribble of water coming out of it on a kind of a, on a mountainside in Rwanda. And um, yeah, it just it just seemed to symbolise this this folly of Europeans kind of trying to Unlock the geographical mysteries of the Nile River.
0: <laughs>
3: but you, you, you accomplished what you set out to do, and yeah, I, I,
2: I accomplished. That it was, it was kind of like the only goal that 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 I set out with that I really achieved, and it was the only real anticlimax of the whole journey, which uh, you know just kind of made me laugh ultimately, but at, at my own folly and the folly of others.
3: <laughs> but it was a wonderful. It sounds like a wonderful trip, none, nonetheless. Um where where are you off to next Richard?
2: Uh I've just got back from Madagascar. Um so I'm I'm right now I'm just writing a magazine story about Madagascar which I found uh, a sort of a wonderful country and a, and, a, and a sad country in equal measure. Um mm. wonderful people uh doing terrible things to <laughs> their own forests.
3: Ew. Goodness. Well, we, we, we look forward to uh, those insights. And I certainly want to invite you back uh, to talk about your other book, um, God's Middle Finger. It's such a provocative title, and I'm really interested to, uh, uh, to hear the background uh, for that book. But uh, we do have a link to Crazy River and God's Middle Finger on this radio show page, as well as Richard's guest profile page. Richard Grant, author of Crazy River Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: All right. Thank you for having me.
1: Coming up, award-winning author Diane Bioff captures the lessons, history, and spiritual strengths of historic spirit stones.
0: The um, architecture of, of the, 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 the spiritual side, we are assuming the spiritual side, of um, Bronze Age and Stone Age a the new
1: new sonate next is world footprints radio continues
2: hi this is Keenan jona welcome to new orleans
4: we're here with the world footprints people and they are the best people in the world
1: Did you know that World of Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio
2: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
3: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Nearly a decade in the making, award-winning author Diane Ebert-Diop, transcending book Spirit Stones, explores the enduring lessons of Western Europe's prehistoric monoliths, stone circles, and burial chambers. Diane's research, first hand accounts, and prevailing love of history capture not only the architectural essence of these archaeological treasures, but also their spiritual strength. Diane, what inspired you to write Spirit Stones?
0: Well, many years ago, well, on my first trip to Great Britain um, with my brother, Actually, and um, we we came to that we only saw a few stone circles, um, but the one that really captured me was Castle Rig in the um, in the Lake District, and I was just um, I'm I'm also a freelance artist, and I was just taken with the artistic elements of the stones to begin with. They are and and their situations. So many of them are are in um,
4: very remote
0: and extremely beautiful places. And um, and that just captured me to begin with. And then I always had a feeling when I'm when I'm in those places, uh, I f- I feel a connection to the people who built them. And um, I don't know where that comes from. It's just something in the air around them, I guess. But but I I I got to thinking about it, and it was it was quite some years later that I decided to do something with them. It was sort of my way of kind of honoring them, I guess you might say. So that's where it all came from. And then I, I just sort of built on that, the, the aesthetics of it, and then I wanted to look at the, the practical side of it.
3: What are spirit stones exactly, and, and how are some of these uh, relics created?
0: Spirit stones is actually a name that, that I have kind of given to them. I don't think they were called that in their time. But they are they are basically the, the um, architecture of, of the, the 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 spiritual side, we are assuming the spiritual side of um, Bronze Age and Stone Age, a Neolithic, the New Stone Age people, and those are the people who raised them up. And we don't really know, we can't really know what they're, you know, and definitively what they were used for. But we have a lot of um, hints, and that's what I talk about in the book, and that's that's where I where I go with it, bringing in. Um, what people have theorized over the years, what these stones were used for. and um, But we do know that they were built um, by Neolithic and Bronze Age people.
3: Now, this book took 10 years for you to write, and it, it clearly is a labor of love. But how did you keep the passion for spirit stones alive during that, that time?
0: I'm kind of an avid traveler, and, and I'm I'm over there in that particular area, the, the, the areas that are covered by this book, I'm over there quite often and whenever I'm over there I track down a new a new stone, a new stone circle, a new um monolith, a new stone avenue, um, whatever. Unfortunately my friends that I'm visiting over there they know about this. So over there. they're always looking up things for me and say, Well tonight today, Diane, we're going out to so and so. So that's it's been an accumulative thing. Over there years, being where? There.
3: where Where I exact mean, where exactly is over there?
0: Oh, um, in uh, Great Britain, okay. um, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, um, uh, Ireland. Uh, although, I, unfortunately, I have not been to the to the North, but the Republic of Ireland and um, and Brittany. Those are the areas that are that I focus on in the book, and and I do um, get over there, particularly to the British Isles, quite often. And um, so it's an accumulative thing. Whenever I'm, whenever I was over there, I would get another. You know we ha- have another experience at at one of these places and and sort of add it into the mix and when I decided to do the book, I just i keep a journal anyway I've kept a journal since I was like eighteen and and all of that's written in there, so I went back in there and and uh, looked at my because a lot of times when you when you look back at something without having it written down, you lose that. The initial feeling of what you saw, the, the, um, physically what you saw, and, and emotionally how you felt. So it's in my journals. And so I just called it all out and added to it as I went along.
3: You mentioned that uh, the time period that you focused on was Bronze Age, uh, Neolithic uh, time period. How did you conduct your research?
0: Mostly with... Um, I, I do a lot of research in the library. What, once I broke down the book into how how I wanted to approach it. In the first part is what I call fact, which is the, the uh, what we know about the people who built them, the the specific things that they built, how they built their tombs, what they built them of, and and so forth. That a lot of that work was um, was done in the library, you know, looking up uh, these, these different kinds of of tombs and online there's there's a lot of good stuff online about stones these days. Getting into the the part that I call fancy, which is uh, and you ha- I had to call that down because there are just endless uh, theories about what what how these stones were used among the people who built them by the people who built them. And uh, so I, I narrowed that down in some way, and then I I broke that into different sections. Like there's a section called Heaven and Earth in which I cover the sun and the moon because there some of the stones are obvi- were obviously used in some way to um, to approach the sun. Um, and so then I I just uh, researched that, and of course I was always out in the field, so to speak, you know, gathering new places, and uh, and to me. Um, the anecdotes really, really added to my um, uh, uh, appreciation of them because it makes it real. It brings it right back down to present day how you can um, you, you can still experience these things.
3: You mentioned some of the sites that you traveled to: Ireland, uh, Great Britain, parts of Western Europe. How did you select what spirit stones? to feature in your book.
0: A lot of that had to do with of course the ones that I had seen. <laughs> and then after that, I I broke it down to um what they might represent. Like like say for instance Newgrange, um which is on the Boyne River uh, outside of Dublin. And Newgrange has been restored and and it's 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 beautiful just to see how it probably looked in its day. And that I could I could use that to 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 demonstrate uh, there's a there's a, a, a white a white um, quartz wall that was on Newgrange and that demonstrated the fact that these tombs a lot of big tombs from the from the uh, Neolithic were were meant to be seen from far away and Newgrange is the perfect example of that because you you can see it because of this this beautiful quartz wall that's at the front mm-hmm. and things like that and Gavrinis um in uh in Brittany has absolutely gorgeous um carved stones along the entranceway, and that sort of was a was a good thing to bring into the book to show the the um the artistic side of them the the uh, what what these things meant. We don't know, but I theorize a bit in the book on that as well. So whatever was representing something that I was discussing in the book, I I could bring in that way. I had loads of pictures, and it was very difficult to... to to figure out who to leave out. I can
3: imagine, and I understand that some of the relics are being desecrated, and what was being done, if anything, to preserve this history, and you touched on um, the restoration of of Newgrange. Is there a consciousness about the urgency, or isn't an urgency, to to maintain, to preserve these features?
0: Unfortunately, I'm not sure that there is an, an urgency among the people who might be able to to realistically do something about it, which is usually, um, you know, um, government groups, because that's how you're going to be able to separate them from from public access, so to so to speak. Like there was one, um, I believe it's the tomb of Saint Elvis, of all things, and. It's in Solva in Wales, and it had been marked off, and it was on farmland actually. And it had been marked off by a fence, you know, so somebody was trying to do something for it. It's a beautiful place. It has it, the, Some of the stones have fallen down, but it still has that beautiful artistic quality. But the but the fence had been broken down. People had been over there drinking beer, throwing their bottles mm-hmm. and, that, and that sort of thing. And I, I, I think that there are a lot of people who care about these places and, and believe they should be preserved because they are part of our, um, you know, prehistoric, so to speak, legacy. And 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 they they should just for the just for the aesthetic appreciation of them um, and also for the, for the historical side but unfortunately a lot of it does not get done the other one that comes to mind is um it was uh, oh it, I've, I've forgotten the name of the tomb but it was on the Pointe de la Tour in uh, the Bay of Odier in in uh, Brittany and there's a surfing school there and they were the surfers were using that as their loo, which was <laughs> oh. it was oh it was terrible it was terrible to see that and i and i don't know um there are places where where people do care and they do get taken into um uh you know uh government care and then they are they are looked out for but they don't nobody has enough money especially these days to to post guards on these places so people can break into them anyway and do do things. It's just a pity
3: that there's not a national registry that y- y- you know yes. that protects them yeah um, yeah that makes me sad uh, you, know, you talked about in your book that you uh, one of your focuses was to unravel a mystery of West- western europe's prehistoric monuments. What mystery did you unravel?
0: What I was looking for was to study what the, what people may have used these these um, constructs for and I think um, the process of doing that um, seeing that they that there was maybe an, uh, an astronomical component there was a, um, a respecting the dead and all of that these components those being parts of it you could you could bring that into present day living so you're by unraveling what what people quite likely did, and how they approached these places, we could take that and and bring it into our current life. And I think, I think that allows people to appreciate um, other cultures more, to have a tolerance for other cultures, because these people were not Christians, they weren't Muslims, they weren't any of the religious um, that we have today. But they had a very valid way of approaching divinity that was just as valid as, as anyone else's, and I think that adds to the um, to tolerance today. It's mm-hmm. the tolerance and appreciation of other people, and kind of the oneness of life and the wonder and the oneness of life.
3: Well, th- that um, brings me to you know another question is just a comparison between uh, the society, civilization back then versus. You know, our society today. Are there any lessons that we've learned from the past? Are there any traits that we should actually embrace um, from from the past?
0: Well, I, I think that goes back to your the the question that before that. It, it, it's the same thing. It's if you if you have an appreciation of of some other way of living, it expands how you feel about. Um, the wonder of life, so to speak, and, and appreciation of all the the beauty and the bounty in the world, d- d- despite you know the, the horrible things that go on in our world. And and these days we hear more ab- about them because we have so much uh, media to throwing things at us. But things like um, uh, say even meditating on on different attributes of stone, the longevity and the endurance, the the um, Psychological, so, physical effects of of color on us—all of those things are are lessons that can be brought in from the stones. Because the people who raised those stones, if you look at them, they raised them thinking about about using color. They would they would maybe use a granite, a gray granite, and then they would have a a recumbent stone and maybe a, a red sandstone. Color was obviously a part of what they were. What they were doing when they built these stones. These are all things we can we can bring in, and I think too that that from what we know of Bronze Age and and, uh, and the, the Neolithic, um, they had a different way of approaching the earth that was that was almost like um, Native American, where mm-hmm. you where you have a the whole earth as a sacred space and i think that's something that is tremendously valuable or or should be in our world today because we are we are not reverencing the earth the way we should. The the healing power of the natural world is something that we um don't pay too much attention to. Most people don't pay too much attention to. If we can if we can bring that um to the fore with looking at these stones, seeing how other people dealt with the world, there's something to be gained from that. Um Oh, sorry.
3: is that what you mean? Uh, you talk about spiritual fitness throughout the book. Is, yes. is that does that touch on um, what you mean by spiritual fitness?
0: Yes, yes. That's exactly. It's just a it's just a uh, a term that that how we can use these different attributes of of these stone circles to to help us in a, in a spiritual sense to become more more um, aware of some of these things that. That the stones bring to mind, like uh, uh, especially to to me personally um the the continuity of human experience comes through these things that that people all through these generations um they're dealing with the same things basically now they're they have in those days they had more to worry about on the physical plane than we do um because we live in houses and keep warm and 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 that and they were living out in. But on the other hand, they were living with nature, and 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 they they knew how to do that much better than we did to appreciate things. And I think that uh, um, thinking of of life as a continu as a continuous experience through time leads to a greater tolerance and appreciation of others, human and not human, because I think um, animals come into this too. <laughs>
3: absolutely. No. What what were the most inspiring um monuments that that you discovered for for this book?
0: Oh, wow. That's a tough one because there were so many. Um probably my favorite of all um is Callanish on um the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Um it is it is such an incredibly beautiful setting the stones themselves are so beautiful the stone is so beautiful it's got you know little bits of horn blend and and uh it, it, it's a beautiful stone it it has uh it has been resurrected from the past so to speak because it was buried in peat moss and they dug it out and and the durability of it that was very very um uh inspirational to me um Castle Rig, I think, in the Lake District, northern England. Um, that's another fabulous setting, probably one of the most beautiful settings for any of the stone circles. And uh, I, I was there one time late at night on a very rare uh, evening or er, night when when the sky was clear because you know in England it's quite not not mm-hmm. <laughs> <but> not clear <laughs> well, the Milky Way was just streaming overhead, it was absolutely magical, it was just magical and then there would be uh Pogo Finn, which is also in the outer Hebrides on north east um lang it's on a hillside above uh Langus lock and um I Dan and i I was travelling with my husband at that time. We were going through the the, the Outer Hebrides, the, the little string of islands that goes down there, and as we approached it, there was this herd of um, beautiful, re- small, reddish brown roe deer that were that were right above, silhouetted on the horizon if you looked up there, and we startled them and they ran off, and that to me was just a a magical moment, mm-hmm. and I, I look on these. I look on an inspira- or, uh, inspirational sort of um, adventure as the magic of things because I think um, we don't we don't see enough magic in the world. We don't look for it enough, mm-hmm. and I think magic is all around us. You know,
3: is is that something that you'd like readers to take away from uh, the, reading your book?
0: Definitely, yes. That that, and I think the this idea of the continuity of the human experience i think those are the two the two the the inspiration from the from the beauty of these things just the physical beauty of them and where they are and and all of that and then and then this um continuity that, that this this travels through life we can get something from those people back there because we're carrying part of it in our genes so to speak and we can connect with them that way so those things are were really important to
3: Well, we will have a link to Spirit Stones on the radio show page, this radio show page, as well as Diane's guest profile page. Diane Ebert-Biaf is the author of Spirit Stones. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you. It was
2: my
1: pleasure. Many have been anticipating the end of the Maya calendar on December twenty first, 2012. Author Joshua Berman will share his thoughts.
4: Well, what I tell people... They say what's going to happen you know, on December 21st or in the year 2012. Uh, the best answer that I've found is it's already happening. Look around.
1: Next as World Footprints continues.
0: Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio.
1: Opportunity is knocking. A viable money-making business is waiting for you. Answer. ATM Business Blueprint contains strategies and techniques necessary to explode your new ATM business. People use ATMs every hour of every day. All that activity generates passive consistent income 24/7 with no employees or crushing overhead. You can't lose with immediate access to ATM Business Blueprint content and a 30-day 100% money-back guarantee. Visit cashmachineprofits.com to order and for full details. What are you waiting for? Time is Money. World Footprints Radio is an award winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information, including special daily travel deals.
4: Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've
1: traveled all over the world. But whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints
4: Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
3: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Joshua Behrman has been traveling, living, teaching, and leading trips in Central America since 1998, the year the Peace Corps sent him to Nicaragua. During his two and a half years there, he heard tales about lost worlds in Maya pyramids. And another story he encountered is what the Maya have been anticipating, the end of the Long Count a 5,125-year cycle of the Maya calendar which will occur on December 21, 2012. Some believe it will be a peaceful transition while others warn it will be apocalyptic. Joshua has written a new guidebook called Maya 2012 published by Moon Travel Guides so perhaps he can offer some insights into what will happen next year. Joshua, welcome.
4: Thank you very much.
3: You know, Hollywood has made a lot about uh, December 21st, 2012. And, of course, the apocalyptic angle is one that the industry is promoting because sensationalization, drama, sells. Uh, However, your new book came around because of a Christmas party in Belize and and not necessarily because of the, uh, the, the dramatic speculation that's going on. So there really has to be an interesting story behind this book. Do tell.
4: There definitely is. Uh, when, when talking about about the Maya, um, it's it's very easy to lose sight of the Maya themselves and to lose their voice themselves. And that movie that came out in 2009 was kind of a big trigger that kind of launched this discussion of 2012 kind of out of the hands of the Maya and, and into the rest of the world, where many interesting theories abound. But what happened at this Christmas party? And it was it was up in Western Belize in the highlands of Belize. And I was updating my book, Moon Belize, uh, working on the ninth edition of that book, which meant that I was traveling to each of these jungle lodges along the banks of the Macaw River. And, and the western Belize is one of the prime uh, spots for the Maya, uh, both living Maya villages and also the ancient ruins. And I was at a party of, at the lodge at Shaw Creek, and I asked the owner, Lucy Fleming, and I said, what are you planning for 2012? Uh, and this was this was about a year ago. And she started telling me that they're going to reenact an ancient Maya village. The guests are going to wear Maya garb. They're going to have uh, Maya astrologers and astronomers on hand. They're going to erect a stella, you know, a big stone slab with everybody's name on it. They're going to do ceremonies. Um, they're going to take it, uh, use it as an excuse, really, to kind of um, celebrate Maya culture. And I thought, well, if she's doing that, she's planning this this far in advance. I wonder who else is, is planning uh similarly creative celebrations and I started asking around and this was last winter and sure enough I, I found that there there was enough being planned uh, to warrant a book that focused on the travel aspect of 2012
3: mm-hmm. and you know your book Maya 2012 which is published by Mean Travel Guides as I mentioned is not really your typical travel guidebook uh, what what distinguishes it? From I've, been writing,
4: I've been writing guidebooks uh, since 2001 is when I wrote the first comprehensive guidebook to Nicaragua, and I have four titles. Uh, you're right, Moon Maya 2012 is unlike any guidebook I've ever written. It's probably unlike any guidebook that uh, your listeners have read. It allowed me to, to really put a little bit more narrative travel in there, so each of the destination uh, chapters. and the destinations, it kind of breaks down the Mundo Maya, the Maya world, into the uh, how you would tackle that if you wanted to go visit the Mundo Maya in 2012? Uh, here's how you would do it. Here's where, here's some of the bases that make sense, and uh, so so working on that, I, I definitely found that the that the Maya lost awesome my train of thought. You were asking me about
0: Did, uh, what distinguishes
3: your guidebook from the um, from others. Yeah.
4: Okay. Finding that. Uh, It it was. It was. We're celebrating a cultural region, uh, and celebrating a a space of time, the year 2012, and what's happening there. Mm -hmm. So my publisher really, my editor really, really encouraged me to kind of use this as as a way to uh, yeah to do something a little different. So we included a lot of regional things, a lot of nitty gritty too about how to go around, but also some of these narrative uh, travel passages. And then also I interviewed. Some of the top 2012 thinkers uh, in the world, Some, I'm, not, I'm not an archaeologist or an anthropologist or a Mayanist in any sense, I'm, I'm just a travel writer, but I reached out to a lot of the top experts in these fields and I interviewed them about traveling in the Mundo Maya uh, as it related to their specific field, if they're a linguist or a epigrapher or an archaeologist.
3: And, and is that so? Is that how you ended up um, identifying some of the entries in this book, and you know, uh, developing this book through these interviews with with experts?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. When I when I first started working on the book, I started reading up on it and kind of read the top books, and then I just contacted the authors of those books and and told them what I was doing. And there's hundreds of books out there. You go to any bookstore and you see 2012 titles, and they're scattered all over the place. Uh, but there were none about traveling there about just the logistics uh and also the why the what and the and the how and the and why you would go to the Mundo Maya in 2012
3: mm-hmm. so during the course of your um of your research you know, you've lived in uh central america and throughout um you know latin countries for for a number of years was there anything that you uncovered that really surprised you or even caused you um Concerns you know, based on you know some of the the theories out there.
4: Um, when we're talking about we're trying to keep it just you know centered on the Maya, uh, I, I wasn't really surprised. I was definitely when you when you look at the Maya and you start, especially when you start reading up on it, and you realize that the the real facts, the real history, uh, and the real understanding of their writing is way more fascinating. Than any of of these tangential theories that are spinning out there, and there are there are funny ones. There's one. I mean, there's there's a group of people gathering in a town, a village in France right now, and they believe that they're the chosen people to be beamed up by extraterrestrials on December 21st, 2012. This is in the mountains in France. In are the, you've got th-
3: these are serious? Think of these. This yeah. is serious. Oh, okay. The, the New
4: York Times article on this a few months ago. Uh, there's a, there's a theories that there will be uh, magnetic flares from the sun or asteroids or planet X or a lost city of Atlantis will rise. Uh, it was pretty easy to kind of uh, ignore that and stick to to more the facts and talk to the archaeologists and find out what what really is happening. What's what and what why is this significant?
3: hmm You know, I mean, it's looking, I think. From the viewpoint of, uh, of the average person, and, and certainly from you know my viewpoint, having lived through in Washington D.C. of all places, an earthquake and a hurricane in one week, um, both which are incredibly rare, um, and you know looking at all of the natural disasters that are occurring in in places around the world that are in some ways unique uh, to those places sometimes it's hard not to speculate that, you sure. know, we're preparing. Something is, is, is going to happen at, at some point uh, next year.
4: Um, yeah. Well, what I tell people when they say what's going to happen, you know, on December 21st or, or in the year 2012, uh, the best answer that I found is it's already happening. When you look around and, uh, you know, you hear Rigoberta Manchu, one of the top Maya leaders in the world, a Nobel Peace Laureate, uh, says in a film, about 2012, that we're in this 40-year period of chaos, and, and we will come out, you know, more enlightened beings, hopefully. Uh, but it's a it's a chance for ancient and modern wisdoms to unite, and east and west to unite, and to kind of enter this a, a new epoch together. And there, so that is a really there is really positive ways mm-hmm. to look at it.
3: How did the Maya calculate this date? How did this date come about?
4: So this date. The date of December 21st, 2012 is written only once, and it's 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 on Tortuguero Monument 6, which is in the basement of a museum in Veracruz, Mexico, off-limits to the public. Uh, But scientists definitely agree that is the date they wrote down. And it is the end of this 5,000-year period. Now, the Maya created this during the Classic Period, uh, a few hundred years after Christ they kind of projected backward in time and forward in time to create this 5,000-year count on top of which they laid their history, and they wrote down the rising of kings and battles and wars and births and dynasties were, were all written on their on their um, stelae and, and the stone carvings in the temples, and dates, and they wrote down a lot of dates, and they, they just... They're known as kind of the thinkers and the stargazers and the Greeks of of the Americas. You know, they they're known for teasing out uh, enormous numbers and and really really being into their their math and their astronomy. So some think that the, the long count is just, was just an exercise in this. Yes, to, to record their history, but also to kind of play with time and that December 21st, the actual day, that wasn't that important. It, it was more them kind of playing with with these concepts.
3: Hmm. What are some of the the best cities that a traveler can have an authentic and experiential opportunity to explore uh, the Mundo Mayo in a responsible way?
4: I like that you use the word experiential because that really is the most important thing to think of when we visit the Mundo Mayo, especially in this year. It's to get in there and get out of your hotel and get out of your resort and really interact with people. and, And don't listen to me about... 2012, go down and talk with some of the 10 million uh, modern living Maya who are, who are down there you know, doing all kinds of jobs and, and roles. And uh, one of the best bases to explore that definitely is Merida, which is on the northwestern tip of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Uh, it's a four-hour ride from Cancun, so if there's cheaper flights to Cancun, you can do that and then get to Merida. Merida is just this gorgeous colonial city, really active nightlife. Uh, and it's got these haciendas, these converted haciendas all surrounding it in the countryside that you can stay at also, and with access to some of the most stunning Maya sites in the world, uh, Uxmal, and uh, some caves as well. Um, and then, of course, Guatemala City also gives you access to sites in, in Copan and Honduras and to the western highlands of Guatemala. And then from Guatemala City, you can take a short flight up to Flores uh, to see Tikal. And Belize is so small; it doesn't matter where you go in Belize, you'll always have access to, uh, to archaeological sites and caves.
3: hmm And I just want to point out for listeners, um, as I'm going through your book, you do offer um, information on and uh, in, in, in resources on um, tours and packages, and uh, you know, just tips on planning excursions. Uh, this, you know, during this time and in and, and beyond. For goodness sakes, you know it's not just uh, it's one day in the history of our our world, um, but there's uh, you know this the culture is a beautiful culture to explore
4: it at is. any time. And it's going to be an entire year of celebrations, uh, celebrations and symposiums and speeches and ceremonies and retreats. And yes, uh, in the book by destination, and I list all of the these, these really 2012. Specific tours that are being offered next year, uh, both by really experienced Maya world specialist tour guides and, and expedition leaders. Uh, and then also kind of a whole range. There's ones that are more spiritually, uh, oriented and, uh, there's ones that are centered around chocolate and chocolate making, uh, which is really important to the, to the Maya.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And there's ch- so I've got chocolate tours I found in every single country. So really a phenomenal smorgasbord of, uh, of travel opportunities next year at a very auspicious time,
3: and where uh, where do you think you'll be on December twenty first, twenty twelve?
4: I I would want to. I'm hoping to bring my family somewhere in the Mundo Maya, uh, hoping to somewhere relatively quiet. I want to try to avoid any any massive gatherings, uh, which which are bound to happen at some of the bigger sites, Chichen Itza, Palenque. So yeah, maybe maybe in Western Belize where it, where it began for me, maybe somewhere new that I haven't been yet because mm-hmm. there's still there's still quite a lot of ground for me to cover even in the Mundo Maya.
3: And you know, you raise a, uh, an interesting um, thought for me. You know, we talk a lot about sustainable practices, uh, sustainable tourism, responsible travel on this show, and they there will be uh massive gatherings uh throughout Central America is there anything being done to maintain an, the integrity of the Maya communities its culture and the environment during this this time during you know next year
4: it's a great question and I, I hope so uh you know each government tourism board is part of the 2012 committee so each you know from the top down there's definitely some organization happening uh, and then there's also a lot of bottom up things happening as well so it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out in the different sites and it, that was an easy thing to focus on for me you know that's that's I, I started out like you said as a peace corps volunteer and have done a lot of volunteering abroad and leading trips and that's that's actually what has gotten me around the mundo maya is leading a lot of a lot of these delegations and uh alternative break trips uh so there are those opportunities you know you, you have to seek them sometimes um and I I try to list as many as I could, but you, you really are out there and you're in a village. Maybe it's a homestay, even, and you're staying with people and just talking to them.
3: Indeed, and we'd certainly have to have you back on the show again to talk about your Peace Corps uh, experiences because that, uh, that's a dream that I let go of. And, uh, and so I always uh, welcome the opportunity to uh, learn from and, and, and live vicariously through uh, Peace Corps former Peace Corps volunteers. But thank you so much, uh, Joshua Behrman, author of Maya 2012, published by Moon Travel Guide. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, to provide the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates about travel news, contests, and prize giveaways. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
4: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. West Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Bounce National Park. Natural beauty, the only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
1: World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and
0: On Media Productions LLC, all rights reserved.